Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good morning from the Mississippi Row Crop Short Course. I know we're releasing this in February, but we recorded some content at the Short Course in December. So Tom and I are actually sitting in the Marriott in Starkville right now. We Crop Doctors Podcast Studio B. Our mobile setup, I guess. Tom, this is cool episode for me. We've got two guys sitting here with us that know a lot more than I do about weed science. So we got Dan Reynolds, who a lot of y'all know, longtime weed scientist with Mississippi State and then LSU before that. And then Dr. Peter Dotre from Lubbock, Texas. So Pete was gracious enough to fly in and do the short course with us. And then we were able to catch him to do a podcast, and then I just bumped into Dan before we walked over here to do this, and I thought that'd be really cool to get both these guys at the table together because, like I said, they know way more than I do about weed science, and both of them have long track records of success. So thank y'all a ton for taking time out of your day to get here. Pete, I know you had some challenges yesterday. So I called you. It was 3.30, and I thought – so I was leaving my house to drive over – I thought Pete's on the ground, he's got his car, you know, everything's kind of settled down. And I call you, you're in Dallas still. So what happened? Well, I learned that when somebody else books your ticket, first of all, you probably should still follow through and make sure that, you know, travel numbers and and seating assignments and 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 maybe just cell phone numbers so you can be texted if things are delayed, that that, that should be included. I'm used to making my own travel plans. I mean, the, the travel arrangements have been outstanding. I'm not trying to say that. But I overlooked the fact that uh, when things were going to be delayed from the get-go, I would probably be notified from the house. I wasn't. I was notified once I got to the gate. Things didn't look very good. I thought they were going to put me on a flight this morning, but they were able to figure out how to, to get me to Jackson. And and then from there, I had a beautiful drive up last night. It was it was too dark for me really to see anything, too dark to see anything even when I got to Starkville. I will say this morning when I opened up my blind, it was great to see uh, the football stadium just right across the road. So uh, feeling pretty good now that I'm here. Yeah, this hotel's in a really cool spot. Uh, Right, right across the road from campus. Again, we appreciate you making the trip and apologize for the, the travel difficulties. But like I said before we started, we always kind of like to break the ice with the questions. I'm going to pose this to both y'all. And it's a little bit selfish. I've This is a recurring question that I have for guys like y'all because I like to hear your answers. Pete, I'll start with you, and then I'm going to pose the same question to Dan. In your years – Working weed science in West Texas, what's the strangest thing that you've ever been called to a field to see? Strangest thing to be called to a field to see. Or the strangest thing you saw when you got to a field. I mean, we do a lot of troubleshooting, a lot of, a lot of problem solving. Uh, oftentimes, we're brought to the field alone, so, so the focus is really weed science. Other times you're brought to a field and there's just a bunch of other disciplines represented and everybody together is trying to figure out what went wrong. Uh, I would say, thankfully, most of the time, I think we get kind of close. We understand if it was a, 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 a herbicide issue, weed science type issue, maybe more fertility disease, entomology based issue. 
Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, the strange thing I think is when when you spend time to gather in a field with with a lot of years of experience from a lot of different disciplines, and and essentially you get back in the vehicle heading back towards campus with really no further down the road than you were when you got there. So I think a lot of things are really just difficult to put all the pieces together. I think sometimes all the information is is is, is shared. I think other times some information maybe is kind of put into the back pocket a little bit. So it, 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 it may take a little bit more, I guess, problem solving back at the office and other, you know, questions being asked and things discussed. So I probably didn't give you anything that really would be that unique, but I would just say, you know, strange situations when you've got a lot of experience in the field and still really can't help the person asking the question, what the heck went wrong and how can I avoid this from happening again? I was expecting like center pivot twisted into a pretzel or something. <laughs> yes, I've seen that. Uh, and I've seen worse. <laughs> I've seen a, somebody who apparently just parked the truck right where that tire track comes across didn't realize it until the tire was halfway up the driver's side door when they tried to exit and got trapped and they came back and it looked like they were you know had met a lot of people maybe in a dark alley when in oh, fact wait, so they were in the truck they what? were in the truck yeah so that would have been a far better story jason had but, you given me some heads up because it's hard to dodge a, a center pivot because it moves so you fast know, yes yeah, so, so there you go. Thank you for helping me with a far better answer. Uh, All right, Dan. How did you miss the center pivot moving that fast? Right. Because it was, it was blinding, <laughs> blindingly fast. Yeah, it's not like it has a road gear. I'm sorry, I didn't, yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt. They were obviously distracted. <laughs> obviously. Clearly. So I had one that actually was brought into the office to the, to the weed sites group, homeowner, reported all of these were in their yard and they looked like ping pong balls. And uh, as it turns out, you know, they have no idea where these things came from. And as it turned out, I had to do a lot of research to find out what these were. There is a system that has a chemical inside of a ping pong ball that injects antifreeze into it and it will spontaneously combust, and they use it to do control burns in forestry. So a helicopter had been flying nearby, and when they have a malfunction, they'll jettison all of the ping-pong balls where they won't have a fire on the, on the aircraft. So it was pretty unique, and you can take those and inject a little antifreeze, and they'll, in a few minutes, they'll burst into flames. And so they use them in the Everglades, you do the road dirty jobs, you'll see them yeah. in an airboat with an automated system shooting these things out in the Everglades and also <laughs> to sit on. So that's probably the strangest thing that I've ever run across. I don't really have a response to that one. That's, I, mean, I have never heard of that. Tom, you got a forestry background. I didn't even know anything about that, but that probably has come along since I have been in school. I don't remember covering the controlled burn section. We didn't really have a idea for what we wanted to talk about with Pete and Dan. So I think what I want to talk about is just high level weed science topics or agriculture research. Both y'all have been doing this, like I said, longer than I have. And, you know, I've seen changes and maybe have a little bit clearer crystal ball than what Tom or I might have. So I just really leave it open-ended 
for what we want to discuss. I guess to start with, you know, let's talk about weed science. What do y'all think is the current state of weed science, the, the health of weed science? Obviously, that is one of our herbicides being one of our major inputs into our crop. You know, I think a lot of our listeners would be interested to hear, you know, are we maintaining our efforts in keeping them up to date with the best information uh, that we can give them to grow a crop? I hope the answer to that question is that that we are, you know, maintaining good lines of communication with with what we're doing, what we're seeing, and and, and hopefully describing some things that are probably very likely in the future. I, you know, from my experience and, and maybe the program that I'm a part of and, and the colleagues that I work with, there still is a pretty good uh, effort on examining uh, effective, profitable, sustainable weed management programs in row crops and other crops. My, my emphasis is, is row crops. A, a part of that system uh, has to do with herbicides uh, and herbicide delivery. Uh, so that's still a major part of what what we're looking at. Uh, of course, the you know technologies are are changing. We're now you know several generations into newer transgenic crops. Transgenic crops come forward with with the hopes of improving control of troublesome weeds, uh, possibly simplifying the system to some degree. Uh, maybe a focus on herbicides that are not quite as uh, toxic to mammalian systems. I think there are there, there is a danger, and, we, and we've gone down that path, and, and, and I hope we, we're not going down it again, of, of suddenly over-relying and over-emphasizing on some of the new technology, forgetting maybe some of the things that brought us to that point in time. I think a lot of the growers that I service uh, are aware of the development of herbicide-resistant weeds and things that we can best uh, implement into the program to, to at least delay uh, future developments. We've gone down the glyphosate route already, overemphasizing, eliminating maybe some of the residuals with the current technologies and, 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 and some of the problems even with the current technologies. I think a lot of folks uh, are really trying to make sure we're managing weeds without the overemphasis on just the dicambas and, and the 2,4-Ds. I, I think because of the resistance development, I think there's been a lot more emphasis on better understanding weed biology and weed ecology. I think the herbicide era in the 40s, I think there was just so much emphasis on, on, on herbicide use, maybe not as much emphasis on the pests that we're trying to control. There certainly was some of that effort. Some programs do a pretty good job of, of really focusing in on, on weeds and how they grow and the amount of seeds and dormancy and those types of things. But I feel like because of the resistance now uh, with some very, very important weeds like Palmer amaranth, there's really been a lot more effort towards better understanding growth development, seed production, seed viability, uh, depth of emergence, those types of things. Uh, focusing in on the weeds. And then lastly, it would be an error not to mention, there's a lot of folks that are doing a pretty good job with uh, UAS research in, in trying to see uh, things from a little higher level, perhaps more quickly, hoping that, uh, you know, comparing it to some, some ground truthing observations, that we can capture some things pretty quickly and very widely from from the air 
and, and not have to have such maybe an effort on emphasizing uh, on the ground uh, understanding of uh, emergence and patches and, and, and off-target movements and so forth. And then even trying to correlate some of what's observed initially from the air with then coming back with an opportunity of maybe controlling some weeds with some spot spray capabilities. Dan, I know your program, even going back several, several years ago, y'all have done a lot of kind of non-traditional weed science work, definitely up to speed on herbicides and that in your program. But then you, even in more recent years, there's been some other things that you've done that we have an opportunity to plug into our current weed management strategies. Comment on that. And and then I guess why, what made you decide that, hey, this is going to be a priority in our program now. And then how do you foresee maybe some of those tools being plugged in commercially? I'd like to just touch on one thing that that Pete mentioned there. I'll date myself pretty significantly, I guess, but I I grew up in the Delta over on the Arkansas side. Right up the road. That's right. We we grew up within 20 miles. 10 miles of each other probably. You know, annual grasses, small-seeded broadleaves were the number one problem then, and Trefland was, that was the product. And then we've seen the thing that Pete described, the evolution or – the biological effects of selection pressure and the different chemistries that were involved. And cocklebur was big problems and the diphenyl ethers. And, you know, now we have kids that don't know what a cocklebur is. They, they, you know, what is this weed? So, um, so some things come, have come full circle. So we're back to that era of annual grass, small-seeded broadleaves being problematic. So some things have changed and some have come full circle, and you were talking about new technologies. And I think when um, David Shaw and I first started doing some of the remote sensing type uh, work and the imagery and those kinds of things, that the idea was a little bit ahead of the the technology. So then uh, we had to fly multispectral cameras. They had to be an aircraft uh, it was pretty expensive. About the best spatial resolution we could get is about a half a meter. And now with these drones, we can do it uber quick, um, and we can get, I mean, you can get centimeter accuracy if you want to do that. So you can get too much data. But, you know, I think that uh, uh, kind of what Peter was uh, describing being better stewards of the technologies, and I think that this will in a enable us to do, I don't like the uh, term precision agriculture. I'd rather use site-specific agriculture. So I think we can, you know, typically now herbicide application, uh, particularly like a soil-applied herbicide, we're putting too high of a rate in some areas of the field, too low of a rate in the other areas of the field based on soil texture and those kinds of things. this technology will allow us to do more variable rate, site-specific application, customize the rates, and then in a post-emergence uh, scenario, you know, some of those uh, sea and spray technologies and some of these kinds of things where we're only using post-emergence products where there is a pest present. So I think from an environmental and economic standpoint, that it certainly can be advantageous to the farmer. So... That was kind of the interest, and I'm, I'm a little bit of a, 
techno geek. I kind of like to computerize kinds of things. It's really exciting. I would love to be a young new scientist now with some of the technologies that are out there and be able to dive into the to the possibilities. You have the advantage of being able to attract some necessarily non-ag traditional type students because you will get somebody in there who's maybe more of a computer programming background or somebody who's more interested in looking at the the drone type technology and any spatial referencing and all the rest of that. So the whole direction, I think, that you talk about, that ag is more than likely moving in lots of disciplines, not just weed science, but I think that sets the stage for some other disciplines and certainly opens the doors to some more non-traditional students, which I think is helpful. So I grew up on a farm, um, but I've had about 48 graduate students over my career I need to go back and determine the exact number that came from a farm, um, but it's, I, I bet it's way less than half. I mean, it, they're just finding a, someone who grew up on a, in a farm setting coming into the graduate school. I, I'd be curious, Pete, what you, know, what you feel like your percentages might be, but it's, it's not, I'd say it's the exception rather than the norm for our program in the heart of agriculture. I think I would agree with you. You threw out less than half, probably less than half. I think early on, and now we've been doing this for a while, Dr. Reynolds, I think yep. early on probably the percentage was a lot higher, and, 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 and the further we go down the road, I think some of my you know current students and the students that have, have recently graduated, most of them have maybe a little bit of agricultural experience somehow looking over the fence or maybe you know some some relative, but most of the students that I'm – that I have either in the classroom or as graduate students are not coming from the traditional farming background. Dan, you mentioned the sea and spray technology. Let's dive into that a little bit. I think you have more experience, definitely have more experience with it than I do. So what do you, how do you see that over the next five years? I mean, it's a, it's a thing now. I mean, we've seen it on commercial sprayers. We've seen those sprayers running commercially in our area. So, I think that technology is finally here. How do you scale that, I guess, is my, the question that I can't quite wrap my mind around the answer. You know, I think the, this is obviously just Dan Reynolds' thoughts and opinions, so, um, but I think it'll be somewhat like the cell phone technology. So I can remember my first cell phone was a bag, and it was super expensive to make a call and you know there was no texting or any of these kinds of things um, but as the technology you know circuitry the the capabilities and electronics advanced things became more economical and you know now every 12 year old has one uh, I think same things we're going to see on this kind of technology I think initially you're going to have the early adopters that can afford. I don't. I don't think that some of the smaller producers will probably be able to afford it initially. Uh, so I think you'll have some early adopters, and I think um, you know, as long as we can see the economic advantage to implementing that technology, then then I think you'll see improvements and become um, more advantageous for a producer to to make that investment in. 
Pete, what do you see in Texas? I mean, your landscape kind of lends itself to something like that with your big open areas, large fields. I definitely think there's capabilities, possibilities. I guess just to turn the clock back, remembering when that that technology was kind of first coming forward, uh, opportunities to, to pretty much differentiate any kind of plant from soil was where we started and then better knowing that weeds primarily grow in patches, trying to modify the system to where when one weed or plant was identified to attempting to kind of pull spray an area, assuming other weeds were probably in row, even though weren't trying to detect weeds in the row because of the presence of a crop. And then that Roundup Ready technology came out, which really made things just so much easier, and it was so effective as, as that technology certainly now has slipped. The current technology, as good as it is, uh, has had some challenges from the beginning. Uh, I, I think I think this technology does definitely have a place. In, in my region, which maybe you're tired of hearing me and other folks say, but it is such a, it's such a unique region, uh, different sets of weeds, very different sets of conditions. It's, it's a pretty harsh environment. I think some of the original technology that was, was, was examined in our area just didn't seem to work quite as well. I don't know if it was the dust, if it was the hardened off stressed weeds, uh, just, it seemed like a lot more misses to the technology than maybe what was experienced elsewhere. I've not looked at the technology uh, very closely in the last couple of years, but I've been told about some significant advances in recognition and opportunity to travel much more quickly than just what I saw, you know, three, four years ago. So we may be a little bit behind, as maybe we are in a lot of areas, uh, but I see some pretty good potential for that technology in our environment in the near future. We've had a couple discussions on here last fall related to EPA and their pesticide labeling procedures now. So thinking about that and then thinking about this sea and spray technology, neither of you will have an actual answer to this, but just throwing it out there. Would you ever foresee a time where we maybe incentivize a technology like that, given the kind of transition that the EPA has made in the way they are labeling products, more stringent labeling, therefore possibly fewer products that we have to choose from, therefore we're forced to go a different direction than what we have, at least in my lifetime. I think that's certainly a possibility. Uh, I think, you know, as we see a technology that allow you to site-specifically apply a pesticide and I think we have to look, uh, the other technology that's really kind of booming right now is autonomous technology. So having sprayers that doesn't have a person on them with exposure to pesticides, I think that that's an area, frankly, I think we'll see, I hope I live long enough to see that. I think that's a possibility uh, in my lifetime as well, to have autonomous sprayers uh, so we don't have that human exposure component. So I, I think you very well, and I think a lot of it will be political in terms of what political parties in control and in terms of what rules might be implied 
are, are put in place at EPA and incentivized. Uh, so I, I think it's certainly a possibility. You use the term incentivize, and uh, and I think, I mean, certainly that may be real. It also may be real that the restrictions are such that we only have so much that we can use, and that particular technology may allow us to stretch what we can use on a lot more acres. So whether it's a true in incentive or whether it's a way that growers are just going to figure out, I'll this check, is what I'm going to check a box. And check the box has a negative connotation oftentimes, but I mean, that would be basically it. You have this volume you can use and figure out how to use it in, across as many acres as possible. Yeah, I get that. One of the topics we talk about on this podcast would be the current state of ag research and the direction we're really going. And having two seasoned weed scientists here definitely lends itself to that. So each of you, I'd, I'd love your perspective on the direction of ag research uh, and sort of where we're going over the hill for probably the remainder of your career. I've kind of been out of the heart of the ag research for a year and a half, two years now, so Peter probably could better address this, but over my career, I've seen it uh, change pretty dramatically. It used to be a lot of a lot of small projects from industry. You know, to me, it looks like the number of projects were going down, but the size of the projects increased. Funding probably was quadruple for a project what it once was or more. Uh, but being very specific, more restrictions on intellectual property, secrecy, uh, some of those kinds of things uh, that are there. But, you know, we take some um, criticism for taking projects like that. But on the one hand, you want access to that technology. You want to have that database for your growers for the day that it becomes public and is, you know, ready to go that you have the data in hand that you actually did the work uh, to provide to your growers. So, you know, there's, there's, there's two sides to that, that coin that you really got to look at. I would definitely echo that, that comment. Uh, again, I'll just make a comparison from the area that I service and, and this particular area. I, I feel like we've got a lot fewer folks at the university level examining weed management systems. I think it is critically important for us to be looking at the newest technologies coming forward because when it's available and our phone starts to ring, we, we need to have that experience. So we're, we're still pretty actively engaged in some of these smaller trials that are coming close to market just so we can get that experience. Uh, you know, maybe a little bit bigger picture, and, and maybe I'll turn the clock back quite a ways ago. I, f- I feel like there was a lot of emphasis from uh, some of our uh, major manufacturers on putting out, you know, newer active ingredients, uh, studying herbicide modes and mechanisms of action. And a lot of that really had dwindled, especially when we got into the Roundup Ready era of maybe not needing anything else. Maybe we didn't need to understand modes of action or we didn't need any more new AIs. Obviously, that came to a pretty quick halt, uh, a redirection. I feel like there's a lot more emphasis now coming from our major manufacturers attempting to, to, to bring out products uh, with an emphasis on very unique, novel 
uh, different type modes of action, uh, chemistries. And, and although I can't cite anything specific, in conversations that I've had, there seems to be quite a bit of optimism. So agricultural research from the industry side, I think, is is kind of being revamped and maybe rejuvenized. Uh, and, and I hope that continues. I think the emphasis from the universities will be uh, to play a role in, in, in helping advance some of the technologies uh, to the market, hopefully training our students on things that are coming forward, but also far beyond just herbicide use. Again, better understanding weeds, biology, ecology, some of these new uh, autonomous uh, robotic type systems that maybe are going to be a part of uh, the future for managing weeds and maybe some more highly intensive managed crops. So let's let's circle back around and wrap things up. I'm sure each of you have a parting comment to make, and, and Dan, we'll, we'll start with you. This is kind of a follow-up to some of the things there that, that Pete was talking about. Um, I think weed science as a discipline, when I look at the southeastern United States, or really probably globally, in some respects we're a victim of our success. I think we've done a pretty good job in developing weed management programs and those kinds of things. And consequently, I think our numbers of weed scientists have dwindled in this over the years. And I think we have to really be careful to not be short-sighted in refilling some of those positions uh, across the countryside because I think it'll be the same scenario as Roundup Ready. Okay, this has solved our problems. We don't, you know... We're good. Well, I, I won't say that there's a corollary with, with scientists as well, that we can't just say, okay, we're in a good place. We don't need these uh, particular areas anymore. So that's my little soapbox for my pitch for continued funding for weed science personnel, really, globally. And I would just add, uh, to me, the future is very bright. Definitely a, a glass-half-full guy. But as I continue to go to some of our professional conferences and I see some of the younger folks uh, present their research and the way that they present it and the way they're able to integrate a lot of areas within their focused research uh, area, I, I just I, I think the future is bright. Uh, we've we've got a, a lot of high quality young students uh, that are coming out that will be replacing us in the roles that we currently have. I do hope that the numbers don't continue to go down. seems like every time I see somebody retiring, that position description for what they're looking for looks like somebody a little bit different or they're combining and they're asking us just to do more and more for, for less and less. Well, I said I was a positive guy. That didn't sound too positive. But looking at the quality of students coming forward, I do think the future is. We'll obviously hit that tipping point where we're all doing too much more with much, much less. And I think we we could spend hours having that conversation, but we definitely thank the two of you for taking your time to sit down with us and discuss these topics. Thank you all so much. Pete, again, I know you're a thousand miles plus away from home. We really, really appreciate your time. And Dan, I'm glad I bumped into you. Yeah, well, I really appreciate the invitation and opportunity. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.